what I imagined to be God. I, I, I loved him so much. I, I had fully intended to devote my entire life to him. Um, and losing that was, was, was losing the love of my life as well. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast featuring conversations about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and today I'm going to be speaking with writer Aro Kwan about her best-selling novel, The Incendiaries, which is out right now on paperback. The Incendiaries tells the story of an intense relationship between Phoebe Lin and Will Kendall, and what happens when Phoebe is drawn into a secretive cult. It's a book about what compels people into a life of faith and the things they look for to replace that faith when it's gone. The Incendiaries was named one of the best books of 2018 by over 40 publications. And before we get started with today's conversation, I just want to say up front that this is probably one of the most personal and, for me, important conversations I've ever had on any podcast. I've only rarely spoken about my faith before, but it has been something I wanted to address since I do get occasional questions about it. And on some level, I created this podcast, Culturally Relevant, so I'd have a venue to talk about things that are important to me, including things like my personal faith journey and how it impacts my views on art and culture. And for this conversation, I could not have asked for a better guest than Aro Kwan. Aro Kwan's writing has appeared in The New York Times, The Guardian, The Paris Review, BuzzFeed, and NPR. Today, we're going to talk about what it's like to lose your faith after believing in it with every fiber of your being for many years, and how for Aro Kwan, that informed her hit book, The Incendiaries, which again is out on paperback right now. Before we get to the conversation, I just want to remind you that you can find more episodes of this podcast at culturallyrelevantshow.com. You can also email me at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. Let me know if you have any thoughts on the podcast. If you do listen to this podcast and you are a fan, I would really ask you to please consider leaving a review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever your fine podcasts are downloaded. It really does help us to stand out amongst the sea of millions of other podcasts out there, and it will help me to continue this show long into the future. If you, right now, sitting there in your car, listening on your iPhone, whatever, go to Apple Podcasts right now and leave a star rating or a podcast review for Culturally Relevant. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Uh, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Aro Kwan about the incendiaries. Stay tuned afterwards for my weekly recommendation. Aro Kwan, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk. It's great to have you on. And I always think uh, it's interesting to talk about breaking in stories. You know, I read that you went to Yale and you joined a consulting company before leaving to pursue the arts. Uh, I did, yeah. <laughs> it's a, a journey that I am uh, very familiar with. Uh, can you tell us about what it was like for you to go through that career journey and tell us about why you made some of the decisions you made? I knew, you know, throughout college, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew it was what I loved. Um, I took writing classes every semester. I took a lot of English classes and I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. But I also, um, well, I feel very fortunate that my I have parents who said, they told me, um, my Korean parents said, you know, you should do whatever you want. You should study whatever you want. Um, you should find whatever job you want. Um, we want you to be happy. That's all we want for you. So I think this just like bewildered me and I didn't know what to do with that. <laughs> so I became an econ major, um, which I loathe. And I know, I know a lot of people love economics. A lot of people do good work with economics. It was not for me. I hated it. I hated every minute of it. I don't remember what I learned. That's the other thing that kills me is that I wasted like 13 whole classes on something that didn't interest me. Um, but you know, as an immigrant, as, as just a person in America, um, I was very conscious of things like, I was just like, well, you know, I probably am going to need like 
healthcare. <laughs> I just had like minor <laughs> concerns like that. Um, and so I thought I, 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 did, I just didn't know how I could possibly make a life in the arts. And I think, um, I mean, you know, there are a lot more examples now and it means so much to me that there are a lot more examples now. Um, but especially when I was in college, um, I didn't know of Korean American writers. Um, I, I only started Korean, reading Korean American writers after college. And so I just didn't even know what that would look like. Um, I didn't know how to be a writer in America. So yeah, I went into consulting for like seven months. I was so miserable. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we should call out that like the common stereotype of Asian American uh, parents is that, or like first generation immigrant parents is that uh, they often pressure you to be a doctor or a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I certainly received some of that pressure when I was going through college, um, but it it was like not super intense, but it was definitely there. And uh, some of it definitely still continues to this day. I think secretly my mom's still hoping I'll go to medical school one day. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it sounds like your parents were like much more chill about that kind of thing, right? Yeah, they were. Um, and I think in some ways, well, they, they did care a lot about um, my going to college and my going to a good college. Um, but I, I, they sort of somehow got me to buy into this when I, by the time I was like five. You know, by the time I was like five, I was all in. I was like, yes, college. Like I was so into it that like <laughs> I didn't I didn't like I was so excited about college and what college would mean that I, I I had a very poor understanding of what life after college might look like. Like I thought I might just like die like a cricket that had outlived its its purpose on this earth. <laughs> Um, just, just because I was like, yes, college. And we never really talked about what happened after that. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was the same like <laughs> college is kind of like almost an end point in and of itself, or at least grad school was for me. Right. Uh, at yeah. least that's how my parents would talk to me about it. Um, but you mentioned that, that when you're in college, there's very few Asian American writers. I know one of the writers you're a fan of is, um, Alexander Chi. Oh, um, yes. and he was actually, he actually taught at my college. Um, <gasps> Amherst College. So it was, but it was very rare. It's very rare. You were right that like uh, there was like a successful Asian American writer uh, that people could look up to. Uh, oh my God, I'm it. so envious. You had Alex Chi as a as a around when you were in college. That's incredible. Oh yeah, my goodness. <laughs> I remember. Uh, I remember going to like one of his readings at. Uh, he had just published Edinburgh, and um, oh. yeah, it was like very formative experience to see him read. Um, but uh, so. You went to a consulting company um, mm-hmm. for seven months. You really yes. didn't like it. And then, like, was there a moment that you knew this life was not for you and that you were about to abandon your uh, health insurance? <laughs> there were a number of moments. But, uh, well, it, you know, in some ways, in, retro- in retrospect, I'm grateful that the job was so terrible. Um, I was working like 90 hours a week. At, so at one point, I was driving back and forth from New York to New Jersey every day as part of this 90 hours a week. Um, it was just a really intense job and doing a lot of work that I did not believe in. And so it helped in a lot of ways because it just like ejected me. I think if I, I think if it had been a more tolerable job, it might have taken me a little longer. Um, but I remember one day, so I was I was on a work trip and I was on a plane and I was flying to like phoenix i believe um i was looking out the window and there was one of those it was one of those just like extravagant sunsets you see sometimes when you're over the clouds and and you know describing a sunset is is a pretty cliched thing to do but regardless um i was in the habit of describing things to myself 
to think about how I would describe them if I if I wanted to use that for fiction. Um, and, and then I was looking at that sunset and I was just thinking, you know, I don't have a reason to describe this to myself anymore if I'm not going to be a writer. Um, and I felt beyond heartbroken. Like I felt as though I'd lost my purpose in life. Um, and that was a key moment of just like, like the devastation I felt realizing that I had taken a very wrong turn away from what I knew I wanted to do on this earth. Wow. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm very moved. I'll be honest. I'm very moved just listening to your story um, because it, it can be very challenging when you are doing work that is taking you away from what your what you feel like your life's purpose is, right? Or mm-hmm. what you feel like is your is your life's goal. So you were watching it. That's, and by the way, that's not where I thought that story was going either. I thought it was, <laughs> I thought you were like, I'm watching a sunset from like a business class plane and like I really need to like get out into the world and not watch sunsets from behind desks anymore or whatever. <laughs> um, but it was, no, it was that you couldn't describe it or or you felt like describing it had no purpose anymore. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, every day um, writing... I find, I mean, every writer I know finds writing to be difficult. I find it to be very difficult, but it also, um, it brings me some of the deepest joy I know. Um, and I knew that in college too. And just taking a path that led me so directly away from it, because I thought, I told myself that I'd be able to write while I worked these 90 hours a week. Um, and it just, of course, it just wasn't true. Like I was exhausted. I could barely, I could barely do anything else um, outside of work. So tell us about how you went from this realization watching this sunset to deciding to get your MFA. Uh, so, well, there was another sort of key moment. Um, I was in a grocery store and I was talking with my mother on the phone. Um, and my mother and I are very close. And um, I was just, you know, she'd been hearing for some months about how miserable I was. And and I was, I think I was telling her about some, about the most recent awful thing that had happened at my job. Um, and she just was like, why don't you apply to grad school? Like you, you said there are these MFA programs. Why don't you apply to grad school? That's something you could do. And it would give you, it would give you a little time. Um, and this, this sounds like almost too cinematic to be real, but in the moment, like I was staring at, um, I was like in the soup aisle and I was just like staring at some cans. And I just remember like the cans, like that, like they, they just became like so colorful to me all of a sudden, like the color came back into my world. Like they became like hyper real. And I like felt such a surge of joy at the possibility that, that I, <laughs> that I had not permanently completely fucked up my life by leaving writing behind that I could, that I could perhaps go back to writing that, that just a few months out of college, I had other choices. This was possible. And so I was just like, okay, well I'll just apply to this one program and see what happens. And then I got in and I was so happy. And like that day um, I was like, okay, I'm, goodbye consulting. (laughs) Goodbye (laughs) business world. Like this shit is fucked up. It's not for me. (laughs) (laughs) Did you go out in a blaze of glory at work or did you kind of just turn in your resignation quietly? Well, um, it was so interesting. Um, they tried really hard to keep me on. Um, they got me on the phone with a very well-known, very good writer who also worked at at this firm. Oh, um, wow. And was writing while at the firm. Um, and, um, they got me on the phone with him because they were like, look, you know, like he's totally able to be a fiction writer while, while working here. So I got on the phone with them and he just was like, listen, I had some goddamn law school debts. Like I'm paying them off. That's why I'm here. Get the fuck out of here. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, if you don't have law school debts, like get out of here. (laughs) Wow. So that really backfired on them. 
I know, uh, right? Um, I never I never told them that that's what he said. That was very kind of him. I want to talk about your faith journey, which obviously uh, played a significant role in you deciding to write the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I know a little bit about it. I know that you, know, you used to be a believer. You're a really intense believer. I... Mm-hmm grew up in a Christian church that was very conservative. And so like I was the same. Um, Mm -hmm. And like uh, currently for the record, like I'm more of an agnostic, um, Mm -hmm. but I know, Mm -hmm. and I I think that's like somewhat close to what you've gone through as well. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your own faith journey, because I I, I think I also read that this was something your parents were not as okay with. I I had sort of like a a jumbled up um, Christian background. So my family is, um, was, and is very Catholic and thank goodness for me, um, thank goodness. It's a, it's a very, uh, it's a relatively progressive version of Catholicism. Like my mother, from what I can tell, she pretty much believes that like, if you're a good person, you go to heaven. I grew up in like a very loving, if very all encompassing version of Catholicism. Um, and then when I was in junior high, so I went to a high school, a junior high and high school um, that wasn't is something like 80 percent Asian um, and predominantly Korean at that. Um, and I'm Korean. And for a variety of reasons, um, and it's still a little mysterious to me, um, K- Korean Americans in America tend to be very Christian. And it's so interesting because it's uh, in South Korea. Um, Christianity is a minority religion, but here it's something like 80 some percent of Korean Americans are Christian. And a lot of the Korean Americans I know who are Christian and the ones that I knew back then are intensely Christian. Um, so a lot of my friends were Protestant and I veered off into, like I, I went to services with them and it was just really fun, um, way more fun than if you've ever attended a Catholic service. Um, Catholic services are very repetitive. Um, whereas the Protestant services my, my, my friends were attending, like they were like, they were sort of like non-denominational, yeah. charismatic, ecstatic, like people singing and dancing and falling to the ground and talking in tongues. And I was like, this is, this is amazing. Like I, there was, <laughs> there's such a direct access to the ecstatic direct access. I believed at the time to the divine in a way that, that I found to be intoxicating. Um, and I loved it so much and I loved it so much that I very much believed that I was going to become like a pastor when I grew up. Um, and then I lost that faith when I was 17. Um, and so that sort of plan went out the window. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, you're pointing out is, is um, for Korean Americans, at least from what I've witnessed, right. That mm-hmm. uh, religion is a very fundamental part of how they organize their social lives. Um, uh, it is certainly like serves the purpose of being a religion and being a belief system, but it's also like a very uh, social activity uh, that is essential for, for many people. I mean, and it certainly is for my parents who, by the way, are Chinese American. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they, the, I would say 80% of their free time is probably spent either uh, hanging out with people at their church or doing church related things. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. yeah. So it's like it's like it's it can become very all-consuming. So what happened uh, at the age of seventeen that caused you to turn away from this path? Um, there was no there was no sort of big dramatic event. It felt like a mounting, a growing pressure um, of questions that could not be accommodated within the belief framework um, of Christianity as I understood it. it. A lot of it had to do with. Um, 
I feel as though people who, and maybe maybe you feel the same way, or maybe this is what you experience too, a lot of people who are apostates or from Christianity um, have had and have a lot of the same conflicts. Um, so, you know, like evolution. Uh, <laughs> um, the existence of other religions was a big thing for me. Um, I was always a big reader, um, and what that meant was I was spending so much time in the heads of people who did not believe precisely what I believed. Um, and it became increasingly just completely impossible for me to believe that just because people didn't believe what I believe, because they didn't pray to the same God I did, um, that they were going to go to hell or that they were somehow not as loved. Um, that, that didn't feel right to me. And, and one day it became, it, one day it was just gone. What what was it about it that didn't feel right to you? Was it like you you're reading the work of other people and there was so much truth in their work and you know that you felt like it could, it would be impossible for this person to not be blessed in the same way that you were with like the right faith or I'm trying to understand like the the origin of that feeling of uh not right. Yeah, that's a great question. Um I think it's the growing awareness that, and this is something that this is part of what I love so much about literature. Um, and this is what, and this is what happens as we, as we, with the people we love too, right? Um, it's a growing understanding that every, and not just knowing it, but believing it, like really, really knowing it, um, that people, other people are as alive to themselves as I am alive to myself. Someone who's utterly different from me believes entirely different things from me believes that as strongly as what I believe about my world. Um, and that just, I couldn't reconcile that. I couldn't reconcile that these people were as alive to themselves, felt as deeply as I did, um, and, and, and were somehow damned because they didn't, just because they didn't pray to the exact same God I did. Once you came to that realization, it sounds like it kind of it, it faded away. Your belief that you were right faded away. And how did you handle that? Because as we just discussed, um, religion is a huge part of people's social existence, right? So like you had friends presumably in churches and stuff like that. Like how did they handle things and, and how did your parents handle it? Yeah, um, it was really hard, you know, it was um, for, and I don't say this lightly for, but for about a year afterward, um, I couldn't really see why I was continuing to live, um, because I'd lived in a world in which there was no death and when, in which, and in which no one I knew, no one I, I knew and loved was going to die either. Um, yeah, there was let's no, just, let's just clarify that, right? That like in yeah. Christian religion, the idea is that people's souls have eternal existence, right? That like, yes. no matter what happens on earth, the person's soul will exist forever. It might be in he like after you die on earth, you go to heaven or hell or whatever, but that yeah. people have eternal existence. And when one of the biggest changes to one's paradigm of thinking when you lose your faith is that you no longer believe that people live forever, right? That like people mm -hmm. actually have an extremely finite and precious existence, right? Mm -hmm. And it, um, and I, I can't overstate how terrifying that shift was for me. Um, I, you know, in, in, I guess, ob objectively looking at it, um, what is, what is the expected lifespan, um, for a woman in America right now? So like 70 some years, that's, that's a pretty long time, I guess. Um, compared to eternity, it's not compared to eternity. It's nothing. It's a blip. Um, 
And I just, I had such a hard time. I still have such a hard time adjusting to that, to accepting that, or um, yeah, there's no acceptance. It's more just coming to terms with my mortality. So people who grow up without any kind of faith like this, they, you know, like children go through this at a very early age. They realize, oh, wow, you know, like people are going to die. I'm going to die. But my realization of that was, was delayed until I was 17. Um, and it was, and it was, it was crushing in so many ways. And I really loved God. You know, I loved what I imagined to be God. I, I loved him so much. And it was a hymn, of course, and, and, and um, it was a fairly traditional Christian God. I, I loved him so much. I, I had fully intended to devote my entire life to him. Um, and losing that was, was, was losing the love of my life as well. Yeah. And uh, I definitely echo like many of the sentiments you're expressing about what eternity feels like. You know, when I was in youth group growing up, they, the analogy they gave was, our time on earth is like a single grain of sand on a beach, right? Mm. That like, and, and I spent so much time trying to kind of conceive of what that would even mean. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. to, to like if, if, if you've ever been on a beach, there's a fuck ton of sand on a beach, right? And it's like, <laughs> you're, just, you're just like spending time. It's like, okay, so it's like one of these. So like multiply that by like, you know, a trillion Um, and like, that's what, like the, the long span of your existence will be like, and going from that to, okay, it's like eight decades, you know, like Mm -hmm. it is a profound, uh, and extremely disorienting shift, Mm -hmm. um, that it it sounds like, like was one of the biggest components of your loss was like coming to terms with, uh, the limited time we have on earth. Right. Yeah, and it was well, and and yeah, and it was losing not only God, but essentially in that on that one day when I realized I no longer believed um, in a Christian God, um, I lost God, but I also lost not only my life but the life of everyone I love, and so I was also grappling with the mortality of every single person I loved. Um, because uh, it, in the Christian religion, there is this idea that you will see them again one day. Right, like yeah, yeah, like there's like a sort of um, really appealing idea that you'll that you'll be reunited, that you'll some in some version that some version of yourself will be reunited with the people you love, um, and that was that was such a wonderful thing to believe, um, and 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 it's no longer something I I hold to be true. Um, although, like you, I'm also I also I call myself an agnostic, um, and I think it's in part like I'm I'm so allergic to certainty now. I think this is a, this is sort of part of the aftermath of, of having believed in something yeah. so strongly for so long. Um, and yeah, and I'm so allergic to certainty that I'm even suspicious of that sentiment. Like I'm, I'm suspicious of my allergy to certainty and I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, I think that one of the things that was really, uh, that kind of sent my mind into upheaval about religion is that religion is presented to you at least like, uh, let's say non-denominational Protestantism, let's say, like or mm-hmm. evangelical Christianity, like just to be specific about what we're referring to, right? Uh, yeah. It's it's presented to people, uh, particularly when they're young, uh, also when they're older, as being an absolute certainty, right? Like mm-hmm. that, it, it's often said, um, this is the truth. That I, I think it's actually literally in the Bible that like if one part of it is not true, it's all not true, right? So something mm. along those lines that like. Hey, it's all true. Like, you know, uh, this is the word of God. 
and you just have to like take it in its entirety and understand it and believe it. And when you start realizing how uh, untrue certain components of it is or how reprehensible certain components of it are, yeah. um, when that like table starts to buckle, uh, it all just like collapses. It can collapse very, very suddenly, you know, because yeah. um, it's not like, oh, yeah, I can just um, I can just believe in these like eight out of like 30 things that I used to believe. It's it's not like that because it is presented to you as a like a a whole patchwork of things that you must believe in order to really be a believer, right? Right. Well, I mean, and of course, the Bible is a vast, capacious, self-contradicting document in a lot of ways. I think especially people who did not grow up with this kind of faith, they ask, like, I, I think it's hard to convey sometimes how enormous a loss was. And they're like, well, you know, if you were that into the figure of Christ, like, can't you still just, like, isn't it enough to believe in, like, the power of, like, love and compassion? And it's just like... No, that's not that's not that's not what I believed. What I believed was not only was I, I believed in I believed in what the Bible says, and the Bible says if you don't believe this, if you don't follow me with everything you have, then then like be gone. One other thing that the Bible says, I think uh, Paul writes uh, in the New Testament that you know Paul is a, an apostle that authored two thirds of the New Testament, and he uh, was very much into the like you must sacrifice yourself for the good of the cause. And he had been imprisoned and tortured and so on for uh, the purpose of the gospel. And he, he did write that like, Hey, if this isn't true, if this isn't true, like mm -hmm. if, if uh, I did this all for nothing, then mm -hmm. Christians should be the most pitied people on earth because they have basically sacrificed their lives for a lie. Like that's essentially what he writes. And mm. so it's not like, oh, hey, yeah, just believe in like some parts of it because it is from the beginning presented as something that uh, if it's not true, then you're in a horrifyingly terrible position, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. after coming to that realization, and hopefully we've done a good job of explaining like how earth shattering that can be, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how did you adjust to your new social order with your parents and your friends, right? Like, which, I mean, and certainly, like, how people fit into the culture of religion is very much part of uh, your new book. My family, again, I'm very close to my family. Um, they They took it, and they still take it in a lot of ways to be a fleeting juvenile rebellion um, that will past soon and my mother is a woman of great faith um she'll listen to this she listens to all my all my interviews it's 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 um it's very endearing but she's a woman of great faith and she essentially believes that she'll pray me back into the faith by like tomorrow my, my like mom by the way my mom exactly the same she <laughs> she's like hey you know like every time we have dinner she's like hey i'm just, just fyi still praying for you you know like and it is very yeah. sweet yeah. And it, you know, I know it comes from such love. Um, and, and so that was their take. And a lot of my friends, that was their take. There are a lot of people who believe, um, that once, if you've, if you've been Christian and you leave Christian, if you've, if you've been saved by Christ and then you leave, um, then that's unforgivable. Like you are, you're actually like, you you now exist beyond God's grace. Yeah. Um, because you've known God's love and you've rejected it. And so Hebrews, I, I think, I heard from. I heard some of that, um, and that that was that was that was pretty painful. Um, but it didn't. I I mean I, I I did feel just desperately lonely because everyone I knew at the time ranged from almost everyone ranged from 
moderately Christian to extremely Christian. Like that was, that was all my friends and family. Um, and then I went to college on the East coast to a liberal arts college. And there almost all my new friends had pretty much no experience of religion. Um, and, and they, you know, like as I started making new friends, I would tell them, Hey, so like a big part of my life, I, um, I until recently was very Christian and I thought I was going to become a pastor. Um, and, across the board, most of my friends were just like, huh, that's super weird. <laughs> and then they were just like, well, you know, good for you. You're out. You're out of jail. Um, welcome to the land of the living. Um, they were like, well, now you can drink and have sex with the rest of us. And, and I was like, well, yeah, that's, that's true. You know, like I can, I can drink. Um, drinking seems nice, but, <laughs> but that's not, that's not all of it. And for me, it, it was, it, it, it compounded the loss in so many ways that it wasn't even visible. Um, my sorrow, which felt and feels so profound, it's the pivotal loss of my life. It divides my life into before and after. Um, it wasn't even visible to anyone around me. Um, or, or not even like visible. Like it's not even something that they can even comprehend on a basic level. Like if you had said, you know, uh, your parents died in an, an accident or something, like everyone kind of <laughs> understands on a deep level, what that means. Right. Yeah. Um, but they can't even like relate to the loss you're experiencing. Yeah. And I, and I, I remember, um, I mean, I just remember thinking, and again, I don't say this lightly. Um, I remember just thinking that I would so much rather have lost my whole family than lost God, because if I'd lost my family, you know, as, as, as we've been saying, God, God promises to restore all loss or my idea of God promised to restore all loss. Um, and so, yeah, I felt like, I felt like just like this gigantic wound walking around and there was no way I could really convey the enormity of the loss. There was no way to talk about it. Um, it didn't really make sense to anyone I knew. It didn't make sense to my old friends. It didn't make sense to my new friends. Um, and so I think that's, that, that was a large part of why I wrote the incendiaries, um, and why, and, and, and that sort of, that loneliness fueled a lot of the book, um, because I worked on it for 10 years and a lot of people have asked, um, how on earth did you stay with one project, one book for 10 years? And I really wanted to write a book for that girl, then woman, that 17 year old girl, that 18 year old woman, um, who felt utterly alone in the world. I wanted her to know she wasn't that alone, that she, and that she's not that alone now. I wanted to ask you about um, some recent personal essays that you've published. Uh, you recently came out as bisexual in a personal essay at Oprah Magazine. Mm. Um, I, I was hoping you could tell uh, our listeners like why you decided to do that, because I've read the essay. I found it to be very compelling. And um, in the essay, you explain that you've been married to your first boyfriend short, since shortly after you graduated college. So what was the purpose of, of coming out as bisexual at this point in time for you? Last fall, um, I just like one morning, um, I tweeted, um, I tweeted about being bisexual and I, in the tweet, I said, I hadn't really ever talked publicly about it in part because I had married my first boyfriend and am married to my first boyfriend. Um, and in part because I knew it could be hard on my parents and family. Um, but there really weren't and aren't very many publicly queer Korean Americans, let alone Korean American writers. Um, there really are just a few publicly queer Korean American writers. And I wanted to say, like, 
hi, like, you know, I'm, I am one, like I'm here. So that was like, what, like four months maybe after my um, novel, The Incendiaries had published. And I had increasingly realized, um, and it really, on a lot of, in a lot of ways, it surprised me. Um, it's still surprising to me in a lot of ways. Um, increasingly, I realized that people were interested in things about me that had nothing to do with the novel. Um, so people wanted, you know, like people wanted to know, like, what kind of hand sanitizer, like, I, I, you know, like I I had a piece in strategist and I just like talked about like things I like to buy to, (laughs) to make my life easier. Like, like my favorite hand sanitizer, my my favorite, um, sheet mask when I travel, things like that. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to talk about these parts of my life that are relatively, um, not all that important, then maybe, maybe I should also, um, talk about this more central part of my life, which is my, which is my sexuality, especially because I can, and I could, um, I, you know, like I live in San Francisco. Most of my friends are artists. Um, so many of them are queer that at this point, if I like make a new friend and they're straight and just, I'm like gently surprised, like, Oh really? Huh. Wouldn't have to, wouldn't have expected that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I'm a writer. I, I'm not going to lose any literary jobs. None I would want anyway for being, for being queer. My family, as religious as they are, they're not going to disown me for being queer. Like that's a lot of luck, right? Like that's a lot that's been given to me. And if I have that much luck, how wonderful to perhaps have the chance to pass along some of that luck. Because the most common myth about bisexual people is that we don't exist, Right. Like like a lot of people just like think that we're not real, that you can't possibly be bisexual. Of course, there are people who also think that queerness isn't real, but specifically bisexuality. um, There are a lot of people who think you have to be either gay or straight um, and gay being you have to be a man attracted to man or a woman attracted to woman. But being attracted to all genders isn't possible is, is, is something that even now a lot of people believe specifically with Korean Americans. It's it's changing. Um, It's changing. It's getting better. But an idea I've heard, especially from first generation Korean Americans, is the idea that, well, you know, other people are queer, but like Koreans are never queer, is an idea I've heard pretty frequently from first generation Korean Americans. Um, so that's the first time in my life that it, I've heard the idea, not only that I shouldn't exist, um, but that I don't exist. And I wanted to make it just a little bit easier for other people, especially Korean American queer people, especially Asian American queer people to just ignore that idea, to ignore the message that they shouldn't or don't exist. One of the things that I thought was interesting about the essay at at Oprah Magazine uh, in which Mm -hmm. you did this was like you kind of grappling with this idea that you are now a, a public figure, right? That people, as you said, people care about the sheet mask you use and, and other things like that, and um, they're looking up to you, right, as um, uh, somebody who they might aspire to be. At what point did you realize this was happening, and how do you think about it? I think this is still something I'm figuring out. I, I say this in the piece. In a lot of ways, I'm a I'm a very private person. For all the time I spend on social media, I love writing fiction in part because I can write whatever I want in a piece of fiction. And I have the curtain of plausible deniability. But if in a piece of short fiction, if it were like the most autobiographical thing I could write, and if people I knew were like, dude, this sounds this sounds like super autobiographical. <laughs> it's still I, I, can, I can still say, well, it's fiction, you know, like, like it, it doesn't even have to be something 
I have to really address is people suspecting that fiction, um, that fiction I write is autobiographical. That's not something that that's not like sort of part of the contract with fiction. So I think talking like this about myself, is it doesn't come naturally to me. And so I've been figuring out how to do that, what I want to do. And I think, I mean, of course, it's certainly a privilege. Um, I, I don't want to do any harm. I think that's that's something that's important to me. Um, and I have such wonderful models, right? Like Alex Chi, for one, um, who we talked about, is is just not only such an incredible writer, but such an incredible person. And he, like, has mentored and given to so many people. I feel as though, like, like every... Asian writer I know like views him as like as someone who has helped them has counseled them has given to them like every queer writer I know also is like Alex Chi is like the is a guardian angel um I was at a writer's conference in July Tin House and like anytime his name brought up people almost got in the most loving way people almost got competitive about like about how much they loved him you know they were like (laughs) They were like, they, they like had people would tell stories about him, like had like stories about his generosity, how kind he's been. And there are other like Celeste Ng um, gives and gives to so many writers I know while being like this amazing writer and this force for good in the world. I've been given so much um, by so many other writers. I think I'd be such a fucking monster if I didn't also want to try to pass along some of that luck. I was reading your other New York Times essay uh, about... Uh, people calling Asian women adorable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you you wrote about people calling Asian women adorable and like how this is very objectifying and uh, not something that people should do. It occurred to me that both in this essay in the New York Times and also in the one in Oprah Magazine, you had related stories about your encounters with people from book tours uh, mm. that were like extremely negative about mm. like the people that you encounter. Um, so, I mean, the, the anecdote that opens the piece is about how like somebody calls you, uh, adorable. And then in the piece in Oprah magazine, uh, you say that when you were with, uh, another writer and both touching upon your bisexuality while being married to men, a man in the first row raised his hand to ask, does this mean you ladies each keep a piece on the side? Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. reading these pieces, I'm like, wow, like people on book tours are terrible. But I'm I'm curious, like you have now at this point been traveling around the country and done a lot of uh, book tour stuff. Like I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share like a, a, an overall broader picture of what it's like to go on a book tour and like how has that experience been for you? Sure. Um, well, first I want to say that overall, <laughs> by and large, book audiences are amazing. Booksellers are amazing. Um, readers are are by and large like ninety nine point five percent like are are so lovely. And like, I really love hearing from readers. Overall, it's been a really wonderful experience. And the the experiences that I call out, I think it's, you know, I I think about this a lot. And I and I wish it weren't so. Um, There are ways in which hurtful experiences stick to me longer than than the the vast majority of experiences, which are lovely. Um, And, you know, I, I know there are a lot of I love reading like studies about why our minds are the way they are and our and our minds do tend to hold on to hurt like that more than to other kinds of experiences more positive kinds of experiences so so I just want to say that first <laughs> that's not as though book tour audiences are are awful they're they're mostly wonderful and I feel very lucky to have had so many to have had so many um, opportunities to get to talk with um, readers and to and to go to events and to, and to talk about this book that I 
that I that I love and to get to talk to people about it. Like that's such that's such a privilege. That said, I just like I was realizing that so often while at an event or while I was signing books. So when I was when I was doing my work, essentially, um, strangers were calling me adorable or telling me how cute they were. Um, the woman I opened with also told me that she wanted to adopt me. And of course, there's a lot of fraught history with with Asian people being adopted by <laughs> by uh, by non-Asian people in America. And I have my own parents. Thank you very much. But what was wild to me was I realized that people thought that they were being complimentary. Um, and, you know, like at first it's OK but then it builds up and it happens over and over again. I think that's what a lot of people don't, or not a lot of people, I think that's what some people don't realize about microaggressions. Um, increasingly, I don't like the word because that micro makes it sound so tiny, but um, it, it, they're aggressions and they build up. And by the time I start feeling frustrated, it's like the 30th time, the 50th time that someone, that I've been at a work event and someone has focused on telling me how adorable I am. Um, instead of talking to me about my work. And I, I realized I was talking to my Asian American friends who are writers and almost all of them had similar experiences. Um, and I said this in the piece, there was one friend who she had, I think three consecutive events on three consecutive days. And each day someone from the audience, as she was up there in front of the audience told her that she was adorable or cute. Um, and I just, I was thinking, you know, like I can't imagine a white man um, giving a panel, talking about extremist faith and having someone raise their hand and tell him how adorable he is. <laughs> like, right. like that's, that's like beyond imagining. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, and then I was just like, oh, okay, so this is, this is gendered. I was hearing some responses from people saying like, you know, this, this affects all women. And of course it does, but it is, it is specific to, there are specific stereotypes about Asian women that were, there are China doll stereotypes about, about how, we're cute, we're adorable. And there's a dismissiveness to it. There's a, um, and there's a categorization to it that can become harmful the minute we step out of those categories. So I know like a lot of my um, Asian American writer friends, especially the ones who are more outspoken in person, they talk about how the minute they speak up for themselves, the minute they um, don't go along with someone's definition of them, um, there, there can be so much rage that results. And I think that's because that 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 scene that's like us stepping out of of categories that people want to put us into stereotypes that they want to put on us uh let's talk a little bit about the book you structured the book so that there are point of view chapters can you tell us a little bit about your approach to having point of view chapters versus like how did you decide on uh point of view chapters versus like omniscient voice um i love thinking about point of view um it's like an ongoing it's like a running joke in my household my husband will come home and I'll just be like really up and he'll be like, how's your day? And I'll be like, it was great. Like I, I, I just like solved a giant problem. Like I know exactly what I'm going to do with this book now. And he'll just be like, you, you switch from like first to third person again <laughs> <laughs> for the 20th time. Is that your realization? I'm like, oh God, you're right. It is the 20th time. <laughs> um, so I love thinking about point of view. Um, it wasn't something I really decided um, with most of my writing, especially with fiction, I very much don't feel as though I'm really deciding anything. I feel as though um, I'm finding my way toward the book. I'm finding my way toward the characters. I think part of it is this is me almost like reading myself as a reader, if that makes sense. This isn't it isn't as though like I went into the writing, like thinking these things. It's more just like me looking back and trying to figure out um, why I felt that 
doing X or doing Y felt the most, felt like the most right thing for the book. I think I'm fascinated by the ways in which we do and don't know and know one another. And of course that's a large part of what drives um, sort of the, the telling of, of the story that Will's telling in the book is he wants to understand what happened. He wants to understand how the woman he loved fell into a cult um, and w- why she was probably involved in blowing up abortion clinics, healthcare clinics, along with their cult. Um, and I think I'm just fascinated by the ways in which we can and cannot understand one another and those sort of gaps in understanding, even with the people we love most in the world. And I think I loved being able to actually show that, represent some of those gaps um, with these different chapters. I noticed uh, in the book that there is very little mention of technology or like texting or social media. I mean, these are elements that can help ground a story in time, but they also can make it seem dated after the fact. How did you approach the issue of setting your book in a specific time and place? Yeah. So, um, so I had a very specific time frame in mind for the book. I never really say it in the book, but I think it should be pretty clear from the context. Um, it, I, I wanted the book to take place, um, after everyone had cell phones, but before the onset of social media. So, 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 um, so like before so I, the iPhone came out basically. Yeah. Before, but also like before Facebook, um, came to life before, before any social media came to life. Um, so I wanted people to be able to communicate with one another, but not to sort of be able to like have tabs on one another, the way we all do now for those of us who are on social media, the ways in which like, you know, like so often, like I know what my friends had for lunch today, you know, (laughs) because I like post a story of their like delicious avocado salad or whatever. Um, and an Instagram story. Um, and I didn't want that level of sort of knowledge of the of the day-to-day details of people's lives um i didn't want people to have that about each other was it just for like plot reasons because obviously from a plot perspective there's times when it's important that a character doesn't know where another character is was there also a reason beyond just plot you know that's interesting i don't really think about plot it's one of the biggest and loveliest surprises um of having this book out in the world has been people telling me that they find the book to be very plotful I'm just like, great. Uh, (laughs) Super glad you couldn't put it down, but like also super not something I'm thinking about when I'm writing. Um, There's something that uh, Laurie Moore says in A Wonderful Story um, in which there's a character who wants to be a writer and the writer says, um, and there's a, she's like in high school or college and she turns in a story and her teacher tells her like, you don't have any notion. You like, you don't, you don't begin to understand plot. And then she mutters to herself, like, plots are for dead people. <laughs> and I love that joke. Um, I, I I have much more, something that's much more intuitive to me, something that makes much more sense to me is thinking about desire. I love thinking about desire and, like, conflicting desires and the ways in which, like, you can want, like, 10 different things and some of them can be contradictory and the ways in which your desires can hurt you and the ways in which your desires can be in conflict with someone else's desires, all of that, like, I love thinking about. But going back to your question of technology, yeah, it just felt right to me. That's, I guess that's all I can say about that. I do think it has the impact of making it seem more like it could have taken place at any point in time in the last 30, 40 years, you know, versus like, oh, it was only it could have only happened after Snapchat was created. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, so I do think it has has that impact. Um, so as as you know, Aro, I really enjoyed the book, but um, I am also a grammar nerd. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I noticed that you don't use con- quotation marks in the book in any conventional way. So mm-hmm. curious about the decision to not use quotation marks as usual. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people ask about that. And I had no idea that this was even like I read so many novels um, and nonfiction and poetry in which people don't use quotation marks. I, I mean, I love punctuation. I think about it all the time. Um, like I love God, I, I love like semicolons. I love em dashes. I love commas. I love periods. Like, I love thinking about them. They're so powerful. Punctuation is how like a, is how prose breathes, right? It's part of what gives prose its pulse. And punctuation is like like if for me like a misplaced comma, like if I feel as though a comma is out of place in something I'm writing, then like the whole piece is fucked up, or like the whole book is fucked up. Like I like it's that important to me. So. I, I played a lot with putting quotation marks in, taking them out. Um, and there's something about quotation marks are extremely shouty. Um, if you look at a page of prose, if you look at a page in a book, your eyes will naturally be drawn um, to yeah. quotation marks, right? Like it's pretty much like it's, it's almost as emphatic as like capital letters. Um, they, they often get their own lines too, right? If there's a quote. Exactly. You, know, so you got, you got exactly. the little, you got the little marks and then you got the individual, the line break. And it's just like your, your eyes go straight there. Exactly. So they're very, very visually, they stand out. And I didn't want that kind of shoutiness in that, in my book. I wanted more flow. Um, so there was that, there was also, so a lot of the book, um, there are ways in which the book is su- very interested in what we can remember and how accurate is our memory and what kinds of stories are we telling ourselves about our lives and what we remember. And I felt that having quotation marks, that there is a, there's a claim to greater accuracy of memory mm. um, than there is without quotation marks. So that was part of it too. Yeah, so like if there's quote marks, it's like this is an accurate description of what happened versus if there's not, it could be just how someone remembered it. Yeah, like if there are quote marks, you're, um, a book is implying um, this is this is what was said right. um, by whoever was talking. And I kind of – and I wanted that to be a little shakier. I didn't want it to be quite so assertive. That's actually often how nonfiction books work too these days is they'll mm-hmm. often like people that uh, – books that recount conversations will often put quote marks – if it's like how someone described the conversation happening exactly or if they have a recording of it versus yeah. no quotation marks if it's like how someone remembered it or they're not sure or they only had one side of the conversation. Yeah. Um, so uh, I do think that there's a nice mirroring there. One thing I found fascinating about the book is that there's this cult leader, John Leal, uh, in the book who has kind of multiple origin stories. And it's not really clear which one of them is accurate. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it was important for you that there was this uncertainty? Well, John Leal is, so he's a cult leader. Um, and he, you know, like I'm, I'm not giving anything away. Like in the first page on the first page, there are buildings blowing up and it seems that, um, and it seems that there's a, there's a group involved that he may be part of like that. I'm not giving anything away. So he is doing a lot and he's, and there are actions that he's taking and inspiring that, a lot of people would view as being evil, as being very evil. Um, and cult leaders, by and large, are are not, you know, they're not, they're not like, they're not like, cult leaders aren't generally like forces for great good, right? Like, like, <laughs> like they, they're not like, um, they're not like benevolent figures, by and large. And so I was interested in how someone like that 
makes himself compelling, right? Like how do you how do you fascinate people so much that you get them to join you in a group that can be a cult? And I realized that I, I was reading a lot about cults and about extremist groups. And a lot of these magnetic figures, magnetic figures who um, the kinds of people who become cult leaders often are mysterious about themselves. They maintain um, that mystery. They maintain they maintain a kind of unknowing. Um, and I think that, that that unknowing draws a lot of interest. Um, when you don't know very much about someone, that can be that can be fascinating. That's part of what John Leal, I think, is doing. It reminded me a little bit, honestly, of uh, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight. You ever mm. see that movie? And uh, there's this moment in the movie when Joker starts describing the origin of his scars. And I, I remember, you know, we actually, on one of my podcasts, we were talking about that movie when it came out 10 years ago or however long ago and how like when he first starts describing the origin story, it's like, oh man, this is like pretty stupid that he's describing this because uh, it should be a mystery. But then later on in the film, he starts giving a completely different origin story and then you realize like, oh wow, like this actually is genius because the fact that he has multiple origin stories is both unsettling and adds like an even greater mystery to uh, what exactly happened here. Yeah, and I think about the Joker versus, like, Magneto, right? So, like, (laughs) Magneto is also kind of a villain, but he's, like, the most understandable villain. Like, he he has this whole, like, um, his his family was killed. Like, he knows that, like, he has experience of what it means to be different and what that can, and, like, how much harm can come to you if you're viewed as being different. Um, And so he has this, like, very concrete origin story and he's very sympathetic and the joker is so much creepier because you're just like what is his deal man <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i mean i didn't i didn't think we'd be comparing joker versus magneto but uh i do think that is a good comparison you know and, and both and both <laughs> villains have a, a role to play you know in in storytelling it's not like one is necessarily better than the other Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I personally, like, I love the X-Men. Um, <laughs> and I love, I mean, I just find that to be such, the metaphor beha- behind X-Men is so fucking beautiful. This idea that, like, the thing that makes you different, the thing that makes you feel like an outcast can also make you powerful, can also be, like, glorious. How wonderful is that, man? Like, I wish, like, every kid, I mean, I guess, like, X-Men are very popular. Like, this is a message that's out there. But, like, I wish I'd, I wish I'd really heard that when I was a kid. Um, when I was a kid who was, like, you know, like a geeky, bookish kid um, who often felt very out of place. I don't know. I mean, I actually feel like that message is, in some ways, fundamentally, like, a very Christian message. This I, this this idea that like you are different, you're set apart from the world, and by the way, like people will ridicule you and prosecute uh, persecute you, um, but you have something no one else has, which is like the power of God behind you. I mean, I do think that's like very, it's very similar to how I conceived of it when I was a kid, certainly. So no, that's true. That's true. So I actually, I, I would say Aroquan, maybe you shouldn't have heard about it because it could have, uh, I don't know, led you down an even more intense path on the religion. <laughs> I'm not really sure how I could have been in much more intense. Like I was so intense. Like <laughs> I was, I was so deeply Christian. Like I was really in it. I read that you kind of wrote the book as a way of reckoning with your loss of faith. Mm-hmm. Would you say that that's the case? Like that, that writing in some way has taken the place of uh, religion for you. 
In some ways, that's been a slow realization for me. So writing the incendiaries, I was reading and rereading the Bible. I was reading a lot of a lot of um, religious thinkers. Like I love Simone Bale. I believe I've read every word she's ever written and reread. And and like I realized I was spending almost as much time with the idea of God as I would have if I'd stayed religious, if I had in fact become a pastor. And I think in some ways, this is a final way that I have of being with the idea of God. And I think it's entirely possible I never stopped loving God. It's just that I don't believe he's real and that this is part of my grieving. And because it's, that's part of what grief is, right? It's, it's, it's love for an object that has become, for whatever reason, unavailable. And if you lose someone, if you miss them, that's a way of being with them. And so, yeah, in some ways, you know, like even the most unrelated seeming thing I write, so even if it's like a book review about someone else's book entirely, in some ways, like everything I write, I think, is is shot through with this loss, is shot through with this loss of with this loss of God, whom I loved very much and perhaps still love very much. That concept, uh, losing God and dealing with his profound loss and like the role religion plays in that, I think is, is brought to life beautifully in the book. And I appreciate you sharing with me about it today. Aro Kwan's writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Paris Review, BuzzFeed, and NPR. Her debut novel, The Incendiaries, was named one of the best books of 2018 by over 40 publications. It's now out in paperback wherever fine books are sold. Aro Kwan, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. Welcome to Weekly Recommendations. It's the part of the show every week where I recommend something I've been watching, listening to, reading, eating, smelling, tasting, whatever. This week, I want to recommend a short film to you. This one comes from a filmmaker named Adam Tyree, who's a listener to one of my other podcasts, The Slash Filmcast. Adam messaged me about this short film. It's called Prayer Hands Emoji. And it's about a man who responds to a national tragedy on Twitter. Uh, the short's only five minutes long, but uh, I really quite enjoyed it, and I would recommend it for anyone who spends a significant amount of time on Twitter, as I do. Obviously, it's a short film, so I don't want to spoil it too much, but one of the things I do appreciate about it is it causes us to think critically about why we spend time on Twitter, if we do that, after a tragedy. What are our true motivations? What are we trying to accomplish? Uh, and so I'd, I'd recommend it. It's like a few minutes uh, long. I'll link to it in the show notes. You should check it out. Uh, and again, thanks to Adam Tyree for recommending this short film to me. He did a great job directing it. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of Culturally Relevant. You can find more episodes of this podcast at culturallyrelevantshow.com. Email us at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. And please, if you have a chance, go to Apple Podcasts and wherever your podcasts are downloaded and leave a review for Culturally Relevant. We'd really appreciate it. This podcast was produced and edited by me, David Chen, and it was powered by Simplecast. If you're thinking of starting up your own podcast, check out simplecast.com. They are a great solution. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.